loss helps us define our lives. By allowing grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Get ready to be inspired, create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here's Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dalal Mouad. Dalal's an independent, award-winning Lebanese journalist now based in Paris, France. She's working as a freelance producer for CNN and as a part-time journalism professor at Sciences Po. Moad was a senior producer with the Associated Press based in Lebanon when Twin Blast rocked Beirut on August 4, 2020. She extensively covered the explosion and its aftermath, as well as Lebanon's economic and financial crisis since 2019. Her book, All She Lost, shares the stories of women who've lived through and died in the blast against the backdrop of a dire situation overall in Lebanon. I'm not well, sure I Welcome, Bilal. Thank you, Cheryl, for having me on your program. I, I'm very um, honored to have you on my program. Um, you know, if you're not in a country, uh, the story that you hear about that country is different from the country, right? And so I felt as if I got invited into a world that um, isn't naturally a part of, of um, what I encounter. And I, I really appreciate, I want to start by saying that I really appreciate your commitment to tell women's stories, um, because, of course, they're not always stories that get told, and I know you're committed to that, so thank you for that. Maybe you could start by telling us about that day for you and how you became committed to writing this book, which I would say is about the explosion and and the way it affected these women, but also in the backdrop, um, what's going on in Lebanon. Yes, that's true. The book's title is All She Lost, and she doesn't only refer to what the women in Lebanon have lost and are still losing, but as you rightly mentioned, also what Lebanon has lost as a nation, what Beirut um, as a city has lost after the explosion and the financial crisis that, by the way, is still ongoing. And a lot of people are suffering uh, from that um, to this day. And I think the sense of loss really is um, for what people lost on, on that day in terms of loved ones, uh, their sense of safety. Um, and what they lost during the economic crisis in terms of rights, in terms of dignity, um, but also the sense of loss that the Lebanon that we once knew is no more. Mm -hmm. That, you know, um, we've been lurching from one crisis to another since 2019, but even before that. So in my book, the women 
while talking about the Beirut uh, blast, bring up all kinds of um, you know cycles of violence and and loss throughout their life in, in in Lebanon. And it's very painful to see that these women have held have had to um, carry such a such a burden uh, throughout their life, uh, surviving the civil war, uh, various bouts and cycles of, of violence, but also as I mentioned and, and I talk about in the book discrimination against women. Lebanon is still very patriarchal, patriarchal in its laws um, and in, in its society. Um, and so these women really are have lost so much and are still losing to, to, to this day. And, and I think for me personally, um, I share and I relate with these women a lot. Uh, I also feel like I've lost my country. I had to leave after the Beirut explosion. I moved to Paris because of that. It was a turning point in my life because I felt like I had to protect my daughter, who was four back then and is now seven, from these endless cycles of violence that we had to survive uh, throughout our lives in uh, our life in, in, in Lebanon. And I had to end this cycle of violence. And the only way to get out of this vicious cycle was to leave Lebanon because I was hopeless. I did not think there was um, any change uh, coming soon. Um, and things were very, very difficult. Um, really, on August 4th, I think I, I, I lost what was left of my sense of safety because that was already gone. Lebanon was never a stable and a safe uh, country. Um, and, and I lost um, my sense of belonging to, to, to this country. I felt like I could no longer be there. I could no longer live there. Um, and I could not raise a child um, in, uh, in Lebanon. And every time I go back now, I feel like I'm very nostalgic. I'm... Um, I'm longing to something that doesn't exist um, and it still hurts. Uh, it's a bit like when you're grieving uh, someone, you long for them, but you know they're not there um, anymore. And at the same time, when I'm there, I just don't fit. So it's it's very hard. You grapple with this identity crisis and then you move abroad and you also don't fit. I don't feel at home uh, yet. It's it, it might come, it might never come. And I always say maybe my identity is just that. It's torn in, in between these different places. It's it's maybe many identities, many places. Um, but I think the Lebanese have lost so much in the past few years and are still losing. And not a lot of people are talking about this. Lebanon is kind of lingering in oblivion. And I'm so very grateful that you are hosting me today and you're not just talking about my book, All She Lost, but also about Lebanon. Absolutely. And and of course, um, I, I'm a person who puts myself in other people's shoes. And so I think about uh, people who've left their countries to come to the U.S., people who leave, I've interviewed several people who've left, left, their, left their countries to come here and also worked with. And I, I really resonate with what you're saying, that then you have a very, um, at least a split identity, mm. and that, um, that there's a lack of understanding for that. And also, in my country, I feel a lack of understanding for the fact that most people who leave their country feel they have no choice, just as you said, um, that things are so bad <laughs> that that's the only way to regain some sense of safety at all. Um, so that's a heartbreaking thing to have to face. 
Yes, I, I agree. And, you know, maybe we're not refugees in the legal uh, definition in the sense that there is no war or there is war, by the way, in the south of Lebanon t today because of the war in, in Gaza, the south is, is being shelled and people have been displaced. But to go back to the Beirut explosion, I mean, in, in the legal uh sense, okay, we're not refugees, but a lot of Lebanese who left uh, Lebanon during the last wave of, of mass migration, we've had five, by the way, throughout history, uh, feel like, as you said, we're forced to leave. It's, it's true that this is a decision that we took and no one kind of uh, forced us directly, but we feel like we were forced because the, the living conditions are not sustainable. This is not a place where you are safe. You, you could die. Um, the economic crisis is impacting your daily life and you're thinking about the long run. You want a better future for your children, for yourself. You want more stability. So, yeah, as you said, we feel like, uh, you know, we've been forced into exile. So many Lebanese, um, there are more Lebanese abroad than there are uh, in Lebanon. There's a large community here in, in, in the U.S. And they would tell you if Lebanon was great, if, you know, we could live there, we would go back. We love that place. It's home. It's our country. It's our identity. Uh, but it's not livable. You can't. Well, and, and the other thing that then stands out in the book is that the majority of women that you interviewed do still live there. And there's an economic overlay with that. Yes, people who can't afford to get out or can't, uh, you know, who are limited in that way. And I wonder how then people who are staying, who have very little resource, um, what is your sense of how they actually survive? I mean, I got the impression, as happens anywhere in calamity, you know, some individual humans help, <laughs> but that doesn't solve the problem, does it? Um, so how do you imagine that people, or maybe you know from some of these women, how they are managing to survive in such dire conditions? I go back to Lebanon very often because my husband stayed uh, behind. He had also he couldn't leave because of business reasons. And I still visit some of these women and I talk to them on a regular basis. And as you say, they have no safety net. Uh, this is a collapsed uh, state, a bankrupt uh, government. Um, so many of the elderly have no pension. They depend on their children, uh, many of whom are abroad. So uh, they send them money. Some have no children, just like one of the women in my book, her name is Siham, and she's 65 now, and she has no children, her husband is sick, and she depends on me, for instance, I send her medicine, uh, otherwise she can't afford that, because she has so many other bills she cannot pay. There are some NGOs, organizations, local organizations, and international organizations helping, but of course it's not sustainable, and this dependency on aid sometimes, you know, becomes um, a problem, but people have... Um, no choice at the moment because the mm -hmm. state is absent and it's providing no support. To go back to this woman, uh, Siham, she lost um, her business during the explosion. She has a small grocery shop. And really, if it weren't for friends and individuals, she could not have been able to rebuild that small shop. Because what happened to Siham, like most Lebanese, is that she had deposits and savings. She was considered middle class. And all of it was gone during the financial crisis in 2019. All of us Lebanese lost our savings. And we have not seen a penny since then, imagine. And no one has been held accountable. So it's a very dire situation. Uh, many people are uh, struggling to access uh, basic services, 
medicine, more than 80% of the Lebanese are living under the poverty line, 36% under the extreme poverty line. Um, we're good at hiding it. So if you go to Lebanon today, it might not be very apparent. Um, I think this is something that we have, you know, our, we, we try to hide poverty because we're, we're very proud, but we're also, we help each other. People help each other a lot. So there's some sense of solidarity, um, but people are struggling and they're very much surviving. Um, surviving, it's, it's a life of subsistence and uh, we're normalizing the economic crisis and adjusting to that. And I think that's terrible. Uh, really terrible. And there is no support from the international community because the international community this time has said, we're not going to give this government and this political establishment any money before there are any reforms, any changes, and they haven't done anything. So we're not getting any uh, any aid and any um, any support. So uh, really, the, many of these women are, are struggling and depending uh, on individuals and on organizations to make ends meet. And I'm I'm also very aware that um, disaster hits people where they're already living, and so this huge explosion, which there's no proof it's an act of war in any way, but probably would you say maybe uh, at least an act of complete incompetence that the that the explosives were even in that warehouse to blow blow up, yeah, uh, and so. Um, the the disaster hits people who are already struggling, it, um, some more than others, obviously, but the way you describe your country is a country that's in so much trouble, and we think we have troubles here in the U.S., but uh, there's not a comparison. Uh, there are there are categorical similarities, but the level is very different. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to talk about uh, your first point, um, I would not only say it's incompetence, uh, it's criminal negligence. Mm -hmm. So for those who are not familiar with what happened, uh, the explosion uh, was the result of, um, we don't know how many tons, but there was about 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate stored in the port of Beirut. Ammonium nitrate is uh, a highly explosive um, material that is used as a fertilizer, but also used uh, to make uh, explosives. And it was um, brought to Lebanon on a ship. And what the authorities did is knowing how dangerous it was, they still lied. They lied to the judiciary to offload that cargo and they put it in a warehouse for more than six years in the heart of Beirut. Mm. Um, and there's enough evidence and communication between various officials at different levels that shows they were aware of this, they were aware of the dangers, and they took no appropriate action to safely store that ammonium or uh, or get rid of it. So it's definitely incompetence, mismanagement, criminal negligence, and maybe more, because we don't know to this day who owned that cargo. If it was destined to go to Mozambique, as uh, the, you know, the official narrative says, or it was meant to come to Lebanon on or how it was being used. If it was being sent somewhere else, uh, this was a time when the war was happening in Syria, um, etc. Um, and on your second point, definitely, I mean, the explosion came at the time when Lebanon was already reeling under the burden of the economic crisis that started in 2019. People had already lost their deposits and their savings. Uh, they were really struggling financially. Um, and so it 
it was really the apocalypse, as I describe it in, in the book, of that collapse and of that crisis. And of course, that happened right before, I, I can't ignore the fact that into the middle of all that, uh, the pandemic had arrived. Exactly. Uh, I don't know exactly what that was like in, in Lebanon, but it was a, a complete disaster here, even for people who could work from home or, you know, your your life changed from one day to the next, even if nobody died around you. Um, I mean, Lebanon was struggling, like uh, most countries with the pandemic, and even more because the healthcare system was already suffering from the economic and financial crisis. And so uh, because of the devaluation of the Lebanese pound, um, there was a problem with the imports of medicine, medical equipment. There was a shortage of of supplies in hospitals. A lot of staff were leaving because of, uh, you know, very low salaries. Some hospitals were going bankrupt. So the healthcare system was already very vulnerable and frail. And a lot of good and big hospitals also were destroyed during the explosion. And we were still at the peak of the pandemic. This was the summer of 2020. But then the priorities shifted and people for a while completely forgot about the pandemic. And you can only imagine the disaster that came after in terms of, you know, numbers of cases, etc. So as I said, it was a myriad of crises. It was really one on top of another. And it's just too much to bear for, for, for the Lebanese uh, we'll talk about this more after the break that's coming up, but I was very captured by, I think a lot about the term resilience, and I don't like the usual definitions of it anyway, and then the way that you differentiated between strength and resilience, I found um, really resonant. So uh, when we get back from our break, I'd like to talk about strength versus resilience, because obviously these women and yourself, very strong. Uh, but you're differentiating that from a concept of resilience. Can we come back to that after our break? Definitely. <laughs> and in, in meantime, um, listeners, I want to I want to mention uh, my latest sponsor, Lifeline Screening. I'm intent on living as well as I can for as long as I can. Um, as much as I can. So I'm happy to collaborate with them. They offer a service for people 40 or older who need periodic preventive health screening to detect risk of stroke, cardiovascular disease. And they've provided a special package pricing of 50% off for five preventive health screenings for $159. So if you don't have access to those screenings elsewhere and would would either uh, have some peace of mind or some early detection, it's Lifeline Screening. And their number is 833-539-0231 for that pricing. We'll be back after the break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp, 
facebook.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I've been talking with Dalal Mawad about her book, All She Lost. And before the break, Dalal, I was saying I really wanted to talk or hear more about how you differentiate strength and resilience. I, I read, I heard an interview in which you said, no, the government's resilient. We're, we're just strong. But would you talk some more about how you look at that and how you define resilience? Because I think about that a whole bunch to be. Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of Lebanese feel the same. We're tired of this resilience narrative where we're labeled as resilient. I mean, we survive one crisis after another. And just because we survive those and some of us are still standing on our feet, um, we, we're labeled as resilient. But to me, this is not resilience. I think um, resilience is your ability to overcome uh, um, a problem or, or a crisis or a difficulty, but to move to something that's better. Uh, it's your ability to heal from, from, uh, from that difficulty, from that trauma, from that pain. And I think the Lebanese are just conforming to a life of subsistence, as I just said. They're adapting to um, conditions that are not normal. We're normalizing the economic crisis. We're normalizing crime. We're normalizing impunity. This is not resilience. Um, we have not been able to uh, get out of a crisis and to move to something uh, that's that's better, in my in my opinion. And this is why I think calling us resilient is counterproductive because it's as if uh, we're being told you're good as you are. Just the fact that you're surviving, and we're not resilient. We're survivors. Yes, we're strong, but we're not resilient. 
um, is not helping us uh, get out of, yes. of whatever we're in, this this bottomless abyss, if I can call it, and, you know, rebuild uh, our, our country and, and our nation on healthier, uh, on a healthier basis. Um, and I noticed also after working for so long in Lebanon, and especially after working on this book, that so many Lebanese have never healed uh, from their traumas. There's no post-traumatic. It doesn't exist because trauma just piles up on top of another trauma. And so when I was talking to the women in the book about the Beirut explosion, so many of them were triggered and taken back to the civil war, which lasted for uh, you know more than 15 years between 75 and 1990. They had still very vivid and painful memories from that period. And this is a sign that they never healed. They never really moved on. Um, it's it's just so much pain piling up on top of you know older older pain and older trauma, and they move on because they have no choice. And maybe the, yeah, they're strong, but they're so broken on on the inside, and they're really surviving. It's it's not a it's not a life. This is not how you should be living uh, your life. Uh, life is not about survival. Not not these days. We should not be surviving. We should be living our life. We should be thriving. We should have basic rights, etc. And this is why I call it the myth of resilience. And I try to counter that narrative, not because I don't admire the Lebanese and how strong they are, but because I believe it's counterproductive to keep calling us resilient. It's not pushing us to do something better. You know, there's another thing I thought about as, as I was reading uh, and listening to to you talk about that. Um, I feel as if, you know, it's 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 a real push pull for me um, because we do keep living and we figure something out, right? But then I think people who are who are um, seen to survive become kind of a weapon against themselves, um, you know, where where it's kind of, well, they, look, they're doing okay, which only means they're not screaming in the streets and falling down on the ground usually. So I was thinking about that because that happens here for sure. Um, be like those pe people who, who thrive anyway or something. Uh, I have to be careful about that in my, in my work, right? And then um, there's sort of a... Uh, you're talking about activism in a way that that the grief has to go into change. Yes. And uh, otherwise, especially with traumatic loss, it it goes into being stuck. And I think I think I heard you say somewhere they haven't been able to grieve. No, uh, because. They're looking for justice still. It's not a normal loss where, you know, someone you love is uh, dies in a cancer or, uh, I don't know, it's an accident. People want to know what happened on that day. They're searching for truth and they're fighting for justice. And so many of them have told me, we have not been able to grieve and, and move on because... Um, we're just so consumed by our fight for truth and justice, and we don't think we can grieve and find peace without that truth and, and justice. Um, it's it's horrible. It's horrible that you don't know how your loved one was, was killed, who is responsible, that the person or the people responsible are held accountable, that you have some sense of justice. So you can then accept their death, grieve them, and find eventually some sense of peace. 
And I saw that in uh, in my own grandmother. My grandmother lost her husband in 1958. Mm. Um, he was killed. It was a revenge killing following a massacre in my hometown in the north of Lebanon. And my grandpa was a pharmacist who had nothing to do with that massacre. But there were revenge killings that ensued and he happened to be from the opposing family. And so the guy from the other family just walked in and shot him. And my grandma was a bitter woman all of her life. She never found peace because the man who killed her husband never served his prison sentence. He was protected by a politician. And it's still the case to this day. The women who lost their loved ones on, on, the August, on August 4th in the Beirut explosion have not seen anyone go to prison. No one has been held accountable four years on. And so how can they grieve? They cannot grieve because they just cannot come to terms with 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 the, with the death and and accept it and just you know move to the various stages of, of grief there i don't know i'm not a specialist maybe they're not in denial per se but it's they just haven't had, had the time to to grieve because they're just so angry yet the thing that that came to my mind as someone who works in grief is that it's an ongoing situation of loss it's not one loss. It's loss after loss after loss after loss. Um, you didn't describe, you know, one discrete event that then got understood in whatever way it could, and then you go forward from there. Um, it's it's not being investigated. Nobody in the rest of the world is paying much attention. You know, there. Uh, you have less money this year than you had last year. Um, for you, living apart from your husband, that's got to be a big deal, you know. So to me, it was it was kind of perpetual loss, uh, which uh, many people that I've talked with in the Black community here experience, right? It's not one loss and then you grieve and then you go forward. Hurts still, but, you know, it's... You haven't finished with one and another happens, and you haven't finished with that one when another happens, and it really is perpetual. I think that's a very good way of describing it. Is it, it is perpetual loss and perpetual trauma, and this is why it's very hard to heal. Uh, you don't have time to heal before you are faced with another uh, problem, another uh, difficulty, another crisis. It's it's very hard. And I always wonder, especially like with these women that I've interviewed, I mean, how much loss can you bear in, in your life? And how much tragedy and trauma? It's incredible how much they've had to take in. Uh, really, some of them, like there's one woman who is a friend of mine, lost her mother on her wedding day. Four mm. years on, her daughter, who was four, is killed in the Beirut explosion. A year before, she, her and her husband had lost all of their savings in the bank and were suffering from the economic uh, crisis as well. Today, she's fighting for justice and her and other uh, you know, families of victims and survivors are feeling uh, alone and their struggle uh, is not moving forward. Like there's, they're not feeling that they're closer to, to truth and, and justice. So I don't know. I don't know how they keep on going. It's, it's really very, very hard. I want to talk about you a bit because you um, intentionally dove into all these women's stories. Having suffered loss yourself, uh, including um, leaving 
which is a, a loss for sure. And I was thinking about you in it. You chose, even though um, you have an idea, I get the impression of, you know, uh, objective journalism. You didn't choose to tell the story that way, which I really appreciate because it is also your story. And so then I was wondering how it was for you as a person to invite, um, I don't know how many people you interviewed, many and at great depth and many times, uh, to invite their stories and to feel their pain along with your own. Yeah, I interviewed um, more women than I ended up featuring in, in the book. And I think all of their stories were very painful, but then for editorial reasons, I had to pick some and leave some out. Um, the Beirut explosion, I always say, was the most difficult assignment I'd ever covered or reported on as a journalist. The explosion and the aftermath, what came after, um, because it felt so personal. And as journalists, we're trained to keep a distance between us and, and the story and not to become the story. Um, and I just couldn't do that. It affected me. It impacted people that I loved. It was the city where I grew up. Uh, the financial and economic crisis impacted me and my family. So it was very, very hard to, to work on, on this. And I remember a colleague telling me, it's okay to become part of the story sometimes and to speak up your mind and to talk about your feelings. Um, it gives you credibility as a journalist who's just so embedded in, in, in the story. Yeah. Um, when I met these women, and many of them I met in the reporting on the explosion, some later on, a, a year on, I felt a great responsibility, to be honest, um, not just because their stories were painful, but many of them were speaking about what happened to them for the first time when they were speaking to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a psychologist. I've been trained to interview trauma survivors, but it ends there. It's a very basic training. And I was very conscious of that. And I saw how vulnerable they all were. There was a lot of crying Cheryl involved in all of the interviews. And I, um, and I mentioned this in, in the chapters. I mentioned my interaction with these women because I think the interviews were the most painful and the most difficult part of working on this book. Not the writing, but the sitting down and talking about everything. And you wonder a lot about this line that you want to keep as a journalist and not to cross it, right? We're told not to get too, uh, too emotional, not to get too close, etc. And I struggled with that. And I cracked down and I, um, I cried a lot and I had to hug these women and I had to, you know, stay in touch with them and see how to help them beyond writing uh, the book. It was difficult because I was taking so much pain from them, right? These stories became part of me. Um, and, I, I thought I was so privileged, you know, compared to their stories and, and their lives. And, and I've had a privileged life in, in Lebanon. Um, and when I finished the research, um, I thought I was okay. But then I suffered from insomnia for a very long time. And mm -hmm. a sleep therapist told me this is, you know, this all, tr all the trauma and the the pain that you took in uh, with the, with this work. Um, I had already started therapy because also covering refugees and displacement for so long got to me eventually. Um, it wasn't easy, uh, but 
because these women were so vulnerable and they opened up to me and they gave me this incredible access, I felt like I owed it to them to be vulnerable myself and to include my story and my voice and my vulnerabilities in the book as well. It was like the least I could do because they've shared all of this with me. And this is why I decided not to do uh, a typical uh, kind of reportage, objective, just, you know, fact-based, but to include myself, my story, my voice in, in this book as well. I feel that really does deepen the book, but maybe that's because I feel there's healing in story. The fact that you together cried, wept over what had happened and what continues to happen to me has a healing property. Um, even though the justice isn't there, there's a bit of healing and sharing. And I, I, I feel, um, I don't know about Lebanon, but in in my culture, women are a little more invited into that, right? Get <laughs> uh, a little more permission to tell the emotional story. And in the the way that you crafted the book with the facts of Lebanon behind it, I I just felt invited into the whole story because of that emotional connection. That was so obvious, you know, and that you claimed. It made me remember, strangely, um, there were a lot of losses in, in U.S., you know, hero losses when I was a child. And I was remembering that the first time I ever saw a reporter cry was uh, Walter Cronkite when Kennedy died. And it was so notable no news person ever showed any vulnerability. It's, and it was actually very comforting, right? It was a big deal to him too. <laughs> so I think I, we're humans before we're reporters or psychologists exactly. or whatever, you know, job exactly. career we have. And, and I think sometimes it's okay to show some vulnerabilities. It just makes us human, not, not, nothing more. And, and, uh, I think we're, we can differentiate. If you say, I had emotions about this, that doesn't make you non-objective. <laughs> it means you had emotions about what you were discovering. Exactly. That's my opinion. <laughs> right, we're going to go to another break, and then we'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, during, the, during the break, please go to goodgriefwithcheryl.com or the Good Grief host page to connect with me in any way that you prefer. And to find Dalal Mawad, you can go to her Instagram account. That's D-A-L-A-L-M-A-W-A-D. Back soon. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm, I've been talking with Dalal Mawad about her book, All She Lost. And I, I just wanted to... Um, uh, acknowledge something that goes on with me. I tend to dive into grief stories for obvious reasons. And whenever there's a a world disaster, um, Gaza right now, south of Lebanon, your book, COVID, um, the persistent way that that hits me is in the sense that the estimates are that at least nine people grieve for every one person who dies. And it feels to me like right now in the world, um, for it, it's not natural disaster, right? <laughs> All these things are not natural disaster. They're human disasters. We're creating so many grievers. And... Um, I, I make a commitment to have my heart be broken a lot because that's the only way to stay supple for me, you know. But um, I was aware of that reading the book that you were telling usually one person's story. But of course, they were not the only person affected by that loss or that experience. Um and I just wonder how you live with that. I, 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 I sort of have this container called grief skills or something. I don't know. But um, it, there's a lot going on at this particular moment. There is. And it makes you feel helpless, I say. And I think a lot of people have been sharing this sense of helplessness along with, with this grief because... 
you feel like you can't do anything and you can't control these man-made atrocities and events that are happening around us. You can speak up. That's one thing I do as a journalist. You can report on it. Uh, you can educate people so that better decisions are made. So there's pressure that things such as the war in Gaza um, ends, that there's a ceasefire, uh, that the occupation ends, that you know there's more justice for both sides, especially for the Palestinians who've been suffering for decades. Um, and you just wonder, you sit there and you wonder, what am I doing? And am I doing enough? And it gets to you. You're grieving maybe something that's distant. Um, I mean, it's in the case of Gaza, it's not for me because I lived in Lebanon and we were at war and we're still at war with Israel and Lebanon was occupied for, for a while. And um, I really am outraged by, by the injustice that the Palestinians have had to, to endure. But maybe someone sitting at the other end of the world is also watching things unfold and uh, has has seen, you know, all, all these atrocities and they just, I've heard this from a lot of people, we don't know what to do. We, we feel sad. People are really sad without, you know, knowing anyone there or, you know, being directly affected. I've seen this online on like social uh, media. Um, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And, I think each one of us has has to find a way to not just grieve, but to, as I said, do something with this grief. You know, maybe I could feel be. that's if, from my point of view, that's part of grief. There's having the feelings. There's finding solace. There's finding inspiration. But there's taking action. Uh, yeah. To me, you seem like a person who's playing your part. And as I, a communicator, as a journalist, yeah, but. Um, Sometimes you wonder, even with writing this book, I mean, is it enough to write this book, to tell these stories, to talk to people about uh, these women, to talk about Lebanon? Um, or can I do more? Because it's just maybe who, who I am and how I am is I'm not content with uh, with what I just do as a journalist on, on, on the reporting side. I feel like I'm a human being. And sometimes if I can do more, then I should do more. Um, actually, journalism would tell you not to do more because then you're blurring these lines. But I just can't. I can't see an injustice and just report on it. And if I know that I can help in any way. I mean, I've been helping some of the women in the book. I've been supporting them because it's just for me ethically to just write their stories and just move on with my life. It just since doesn't, doesn't work. Since you're, since you're able to without hopefully compromising yourself because then you'll, yes. run out. <laughs> you'll run out of steam, right? Yeah, exactly. You run out of steam, it drains you. So, uh, but but you try because you're like, this is not enough. I want to do more. I want to help. Um, and as you said, I think it's very much part of grief. And you see, there are stories in my book of women who lost children and are actually taking that grief into meaningful action. There's a woman who lost her daughter and started a foundation to educate kids in Lebanon because of the financial crisis, you know, the dropouts and people can no longer send their kids to school. They don't have supplies, they're hungry, etc. And I was just talking with someone about it that this organization that was born from the grief of a or the grief of a family and the loss of a family has brought good into the lives of so many other uh, families. Uh, there's another a friend of mine who also lost her daughter, who's so like 
doing a lot to to give back, although Lebanon has taken everything um, from her. But I think it's it's how people cope also sometimes. It's when you are helping and doing something. And also, um, I I understand why you're saying the grief is stuck. And then on the other hand, for some people, it sounds as if it's far enough along that they want to give. And that's a natural part of it. Uh, you know, I just see that all the time that eventually every single guest made something out of it, right? They wrote a book or they made a film, something, because that becomes an impetus at some point as a person. It's what you're talking about. You want to give back. You want to make a difference and not just... Um, yeah, and I think it helps in, in the healing process. You mentioned this earlier, but the process of writing this book maybe did not give me the peace I'm looking for, but it helped me process my feelings, my emotions when it comes to the Beirut explosion, my sense of guilt. There's this survivor guilt that me and a lot of people grapple with. I was in Minnesota and I was having a book talk yesterday. There was a survivor uh, of the explosion who was in the audience and I didn't know and she shared her story and she spoke about this survivor guilt. Why did I survive when so many died, when younger people died? Um, and so I think the process of writing, in this case a book, could be you know producing or uh, a film or doing something else, helps us also with the healing uh, journey. It, it makes me remember the the firefighter that you had in your book who switched shifts you know, it's sort of the plane you didn't get on or <laughs> um, you gave up your seat and then the plane goes down or something. It's so imponderable and mysterious, isn't it? The, the way that it's different... Absurd. It's so impact. absurd. It's really absurd. I, I always wonder because like a day before my mom and my daughter were by the port at the same time, just the day before. So it's just a matter of, you know, a, a day. So many people... Um, could have died more people could have died if it wasn't the pandemic if it wasn't the summer and you know people had left and some of them were in the mountains etc it's just the timing the circumstances uh things you can't control but it makes it so absurd because you're like why them and not me why did i live and other other you know, other people died so which is unanswerable, of course. There's only, what am I going to do next, I guess? <laughs> here you are. Here we are. Yeah, and but you grapple with this. You, you do grapple with this, especially at, at the beginning. It takes you time to make peace with that. Mm -hmm. Do you find that um, you can, I'm, I'm assuming you're in a community of, of journalists in Paris. Um, do you find that you can get some understanding of um what you've experienced why you're there instead of in lebanon you know do you have a community that feels supportive of you or is that difficult because you're far from home um not necessarily among the community of journalists uh because you know our circumstances are, are very different and actually many of them you know, have either lived in France or, you know, they're French, uh, etc. So it's easier. But there is a small Lebanese community that I'm part of or I'm in touch uh, with some friends of mine who share that sense of, of loss. And I hang out with them, of course. But I don't think it's enough. So many times uh, I look around me and I'm like, I, you know, it's these people have had it differently. They're, there are things they take for granted that I never took for granted. Mm -hmm. um, 
And um, yeah, it teaches you a lot, teaches you a lot um, because you move from one life to another uh, and you're like, wow, like th this is a normal life. What I had was never normal. It was never normal. Yeah. No. And I just thought it was normal and it was wrong to think it was. And it's why I moved so that my daughter doesn't think that, you know, the instability and the conflict and the lack of electricity and all of that was normal because it's not. You should not grow up thinking it was. I kind of did. I, I have one more thing I'd like to talk with you about, uh, or maybe a few, but this is the one right now, which is, did you have any fear? You described a government that has no um, moral compunction in a way right that um they do what they want to do regardless of the impact and um you went back and interviewed people and covered in your book um the the whole mess in a way did you, was it was it a scary thing to do did you fear that that might have consequences governmentally or um, um, I had some concerns that the book might be banned, but um, because this, the state of freedoms in Lebanon is worse and worse every day. So many activists, journalists have been summoned for questioning, arrested. Um, um, some who speak up especially against Hezbollah have been killed. Um, but I wouldn't say I had fears because like a, a fear of retaliation personally, like against me, because a lot of other journalists and people are still speaking up and they're very brave and they live in Lebanon, whereas I left. Um, but of course, I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's, I'm lucky it didn't get banned. It was banned in the UAE for other reasons in, in, uh, in the Emirates, uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, but in Lebanon, it's been well received. And I think because there are Lebanese who agree with me and agree with the kind of narrative I offer in, in the book. Uh, and, and they're on board. There was an uprising in 2019 and many of us went on the streets to call out, you know, this political establishment. Um, but I fear for those who stayed behind. And I know many of them live in fear today. Uh, I covered the LGBTIQ community for a while. And I remember last year there was a crackdown against um, the drag queens in, in Lebanon. And one person told me, I've never felt more scared in my life. Uh, well, things yeah. are very dire when it comes to individual freedoms, sexual and, you know, freedom. And, you know, oppressing women and gender nonconforming and sexuality nonconforming people is part and parcel of... Um, I think oppression in general. And I wonder if that's the reason, because you talk a lot about um, the lack of rights for women in Lebanon and and the Middle East um, and the, the kind of bind women are in, depending on which group they're in. And you went into a lot of detail there. So I wonder if that isn't a piece of it anyway. It is definitely. I, I think it's part of this overall crackdown on freedoms and oppression. And, you know, this is uh, LGBTIQ or migrants or women are all under one umbrella or banner of human rights. And uh, yes. we should not divide them. I think it's it's they're all in, interlinked. And I'm worried that the state of freedom in Lebanon is not what it used to be. This is what worries me uh, the most. That's 
where we'll have to end it for today. But I really appreciate you being with me today. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Amir, thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. I, I hope people will go to your Instagram account, Dalal Mawad, and um, look at all the really great work you do. Next week, I'll have Laurel Braitman. Her book, What Looks Like Bravery, is about her father, who was expected to die of cancer when she was a child, and set about teaching her skills to live without him, um, but not how to have her feelings about living in that way until she was much older. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.